Amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor Wendy. Thank you for doing that. Doing the Didn't she do a great job with the announcements? Come on, that was good. Good work, good work, good work. Um, you know, as far as the barbecue goes, I mean, she's right. If your name starts with like a Z, but you make really good macaroni salad, I wouldn't want to miss out on that. So please bring the thing that you're best at making, if you have a, you know, a preference or something like that. Really looking forward to that on Wednesday nights. Um, and uh, we'll have plenty of hamburgers and hot dogs. It's going to be awesome. Welcome to church today to Engage Boise. Uh, school starts and everybody gets into a routine. Uh, we are grateful that you are here with us today. I know you could go to any church you wanted to. And we're grateful you came to this one if you joined us online. Thanks for doing that. Uh, as I said, I said this on Wednesday, I really encourage you to make church a part of what you do. Um, our hope at this church is to encourage you, love on you, challenge you. Sometimes, uh, not just you, but uh, your whole entire family. We believe, we say this all the time, we believe that if we love the family, we can change the world. If you don't have a family uh, at home, you have one here. And we would love to have you be part of our family. Um, it's just awesome to be here. If I haven't shaken your hand ever, I'd love to shake your hand afterwards. I'll meet you afterwards. We have a coffee mug for you, all that good stuff. Uh, hey, today I'm really excited to finish up the book of Ephesians. We've been going through the book of Ephesians for like half the year, uh, diving deep into it. We're going to get all the way through chapter 6 today. So if you want to, you can turn there, flip your device there, however it is. You have the Bible. I'll get to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, I'll give you some clues as to what we have coming up next. Our next series that we do will be called His Love Endures Forever. Uh, and many, some of you might know that's a line out of the Psalms. So we're going to spend a month, uh, just a different psalm each Sunday. And then tentatively after that, I'm, talking, I'm planning on talking about the life of Joseph. So um, I'm excited about all the things that are coming up. But this morning, we are finishing up Paul's prison epistle, Ephesians. We talked last week about the beginning of this very famous passage about the armor of God. And we said a few things. We said that God's heart for us in this life is that we don't just survive the battle that we put on the armor that he has given us, and we run into the battle. We run to the battle. Uh, a few, uh, one, there was a song called Run to the Battle, which is what I named the message after, and one person knew it last week. I know my dad will know it. He's here, but uh, one person knew the song last week, so good, good work, Pastor Murray. <laughs> now, if we are putting on some kind of armor, uh, if the, the Bible tells us to put on the armor, then that means we are fighting something. We're involved in some kind of war. And Ephesians 6.12 says that, right? That we indeed are at war. That's the famous verse that says, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. Because we aren't, I mean, you might be in a physical battle as well sometimes, but more than that, we're in a spiritual battle. That's what the Bible says. And for this war, we need the armor of God. Uh, now, uh, at our last church, it was, it was funny. My, my sons, uh, after church, pretty much every week, they would go dig out the toy armor and be running around, you know, fighting each other with the toy armor. So that's kind of what I picture. But there's two very unusual things about this war that we're fighting. I just got to set this up for you so the rest of it will make sense. One of those is that this war that we are in, the battle that's not against flesh and blood, the outcome is 100% decided. We've read the end of the book, right? If you read the, the last part of Revelation, uh, God wins. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? We, we know that that's how it ends. So if we know how it ends, why do we fight? Why put in the effort? And that's what we talked about last week. We fight because we believe in the cause. 
right? We fight because we believe in the cause of Jesus Christ. I gave you an example of a thing from my life, uh, you know, different types of phones that for a long time I would just like have these big discussions with people. And I was not going to change their mind, but I believed in the cause. Here's the thing with this, though. Uh, we're going to talk about this here in a little bit. But as you speak, God can anoint your words and people's hearts can be changed. We fight because we believe in the cause. And we want to take as many with us to heaven as we can. We don't want to leave anyone, uh, you know, unaccounted for. And that's why we fight. The second interesting thing about this war is that in this war, we are bringing life and not death. Most wars, most battles, the object is to kill as many as possible. In this war, we are hoping to bring as many to life as possible. And this is what leads us in to part two of run to the battle. It said all of these pieces of the armor, uh, they bring life. The belt of truth, it brings life and not death. The breastplate of righteousness that we talked about last week, it brings life and not death. The shoes of peace bring life, not death. One thing, I think I have it on the screen for you that I want you to remember from last week. Peace with God, friends. Peace with God takes us farther than peace with the world ever will. Peace with God will change your life. As we continue to talk about this spiritual armor that we must take up as Christians, there's something essential that we said last week that we must reiterate. We have to go back and look at verses 10 and 11, the opening verse of this final part of Ephesians that's the setup for the entire thing. And it says, put on part of the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Yeah, I missed a little bit. No, that's not what it says, right? Uh, verse 10 and 11 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So in order to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, we have to have all of the armor equipped and ready. There's not anyone else who can put on your armor for you. You can't have your buddy put on the helmet and decide that's good enough and you just decide to carry the shield. Now, it sounds funny, but that's something, especially in the church, that we often try and do. You would never do it in a flesh and blood battle, for sure. Now, oh, my buddy's got his helmet. I don't need mine. You'd never do that. But we often try it in the church. You know, Patrick, he studies the Bible a lot, so I'll just I'll go listen to him instead. <laughs> Let him do it for me. Well, he's pretty righteous, so I just... I'll just hang out with him and let it rub off on me a little bit, right? I'll leave that part to somebody else. Uh, you can't only put on part of it. You've got to put on the full armor of God, and that's what it says here. So this morning, before we conclude Paul's letter to the Ephesians, our jumping off point for this week is this continuation uh, of our second thing from last week. And that is that when we put on the full armor of God, Paul wants us to know that we are bringing life and not death. You got your Bibles in front of you, uh, Ephesians 6, 16 and 17. I'm reading out the NIV to you this morning. It says this. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord, word of God. So we can see the next after the ones we talked about last week. And if you want to hear last week's, it's on YouTube or podcast or whatever. Uh, after the belts of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of peace, we have three parts of the soldier's armor that they seem a little more like weapons than the rest. 
Two defensive weapons, one offensive weapon. First up in here was the shield of faith. Now, if you're going into a battle, if we're going into the spiritual battle that is this world, you can't go without your shield. In any battle, uh, it's not only important to know how you will attack, but it's important to make sure that you're protected from whatever it is the enemy is going to bring. Now, the shield that Paul would have been envisioning when he wrote this down, it's not a, a small little shield like you wield on your forearm. And again, I was thinking of my boys. I just picture, anyone like snowball fights? Maybe we should have a church snowball fight if it snows enough this, this year. Um, just picture my boys. They have these little disc sleds, you know, and they're supposed to sled on them. But what they want to do is hold them as a shield and hide behind them and try and throw snowballs from behind them, right? I just gave some of you a really good idea for snowballing your kids. <laughs> no, the type of shield that they would have used, it's not a little a shield that goes on your arm. This is a shield that would protect just about your entire body. If you picture something about the size of a door, that's what they would hold, essentially from their neck all the way down. Often they would line up side to side and they would make something that effectively looked like a wall. So all these guys holding these giant door-sized shields and they would get next to each other and form this wall and move forward. There were usually, these big shields were usually a couple of layers of wood glued together and they'd have some kind of animal hide on each side to toughen them up and they were held together by some kind of metal, whatever it is they could find. So these things were massive and they were tough and you could use them in conjunction with other people in your army. But don't miss the meaning of the rest of the verse here. Uh, you see, with the shield of faith, we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Think about the way, the warf the way that uh, warfare worked back then. Shooting an arrow was one thing. Shooting an arrow was a way you could attack from far away without putting yourself in danger. And if the arrow happened to find its way around a shield or something, you could take out a soldier that way. But if you could somehow start a fire behind enemy lines... That's the kind of thing that could cause some kind of catastrophic damage. And it could prepare the way for a much more successful assault. And the same concept applies today. Modern militaries, if you go read about it, they have these bombs and missiles that uh, they don't explode when they hit their target. They burrow down underneath the ground. Or they go a little farther once they hit something, and then they explode. Because once they get inside, they can cause massive damage, chaos. They burrow down or in, and they explode from inside. And think about what uh, we said about our enemy last week. One key thing was that he has lost his best weapon, right? Satan's best weapon for all of time was death. He thought, if I could just kill these people, uh, then they can't serve God. But Jesus defeated that by rising on the third day. He took the enemy's best weapon. He defeated it. So the enemy's only good strategy is to be sneaky and destructive. And what he does is he uses fiery arrows, and one more really interesting thing about these shields that these soldiers carried in the first century, they were often coated with this special type of oil. So even if they got hit with a fiery arrow, the oil would help put the fire out. What the oil did was not only stop the arrow, but put out the flame before it could spread. Man, what a beautiful picture of what the shield of faith does for us. Because when we have faith in God, Another word for faith in God would be maybe trust in God. We have some type of unshakable belief that the creator of the universe has us. And no matter what 
roller coaster we feel like we're on in life, the creator of the universe has us. If we have that, then we are protected from the lies of the enemy. And that's what he would seek to do. Uh, a lot of times in the New Testament, when we see fiery darts, we liken that to temptation. He would like to uh, throw a fiery dart of temptation in there and have a fire start to spread. Revelation 21.10, the enemy, uh, Satan, is called the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. If you've got KJV, I know your KJV says the accuser of the brethren, right? That's the classic. And what the enemy would do is seek to fire those flaming arrows of accusation against those who know God. Those flaming arrows would say something like, ah, you know what, you're not good enough to be a Christian. You say you believe in God and you go out and you, you do that. Flaming arrow of the enemy would say something like, man, that thing that you're struggling with, you think you've got over it, but you're never going to kick it. Flaming arrow of accusation from the enemy would say something like, hey, your family's never going to accept you being a Christian. Might as well not even go down that path. That's something we deal with specifically in the Treasure Valley a lot. Those are just examples. But holding the shield of faith, it comes down to believing what God says about us. Instead of believing what the enemy says, believing what God says about us. I have some scriptures for you here that I don't have on the screen. You can jot them down if you'd like. But uh, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And as we've said over and over again throughout Ephesians, you go back and listen to it. What God says about us is that we are his beloved sons and daughters. If you know Christ in here, you are a son or a daughter of God. And if you're in God's family, that means you have all the rights and privileges of one of his kids. One of my favorite verses, I quote this thing all the time to everyone that will listen, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You see, those things that God says about us, they form a shield against the attacks of the enemy. And what God says about us is also contained in Romans 8, 1. Uh, a lot of you know this one. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ah, that's what the shield of faith says. Obeying God's commands moment by moment, see, it strengthens that shield day by day. Ah, it makes that wood ever more sturdy. Obeying God's commands it, uh, that are in his word, man, it makes that gap between us and the person who's fighting next to us, it makes that gap to us ever smaller makes that oil that our shield's coated with, it, it makes it quench the fiery darts all the better. See, friends, a strong belief in our hearts about what God says about us, it strengthens, strengthens the shield of faith that we hold each day. And remember, the shield of faith brings life and not death. Next command here, and it comes in verse 17, uh, says, put on salvation as your helmet. Now, again, we're talking about Paul was envisioning Roman uh, armor here. The, the Roman helmet that Paul would have been referencing here, he was, uh, they were made out of some type of really heavy metal, uh, either iron or bronze. And they had something soft in them to help them fit nice and tight. If you ever played like football with pads, and you put that helmet on and it feels really heavy at first. And they put all the padding in it to make it so it doesn't flop around on your head. 
Um, that's kind of what they did. Mine, when I played football, my head was so small they could never get enough stuff in there that it wouldn't bounce around on my head. Uh, the ones we had had these uh, air things, and they would pump them up, and the coach would just pump that thing up until it was about to explode. <clears throat> but picture something like that. They get as tight as they can because it's heavy, and they don't want it bouncing around on your head. Now, the head is probably the most important part of the body, but it was the only thing that was not protected by the the breastplate of righteousness, or the shield. So the question is, why would someone, why would Paul be telling someone who purportedly is already a Christian, why would he be telling them to take up salvation? Because they should already have it, right? There's a couple scriptures uh, that go along with this one that give us a little more insight. One of them is Isaiah 59. There's a whole bunch of these in the Old Testament that we don't have time to go through. Uh, but one it is, in, is in Isaiah 59 where we see that we identify with God himself when we put on this armor. When we put on the armor of God, spiritually, we identify with God himself. Check this out. Isaiah 59, 17. It says about God. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. You see, these spiritual weapons are the same ones that God took and takes upon himself. Another one that gives us a great clue about what the helmet of salvation means. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. I think I have it up there. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And here's the key, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Did you catch that little word in there that makes all the difference? The hope of salvation. You see, when you are in the middle of the fight of your life, man, life and death, holding something at arm's length, because if you let go, it's going to kill you. The belief that you can win Man, the belief that you can win makes all the difference. And what we have as we fight the battle that's not against flesh and blood, what protects our mind is the hope that we have in salvation. The belief that God, uh, he's raising the dead in us each day. And we once were dead in sin, but now we are alive in Christ. He's raising the dead in us. And I think this morning, uh, an understanding of repentance is essential to putting on the helmet of salvation. If you don't understand how repentance works and how forgiveness works, at least the best a human can, then you can't put on the helmet of salvation. You see, we have to take to heart this fact that having hope in salvation, it does not mean a life of, perf a life of perfection. Having hope in God's salvation does not mean you have to be a perfect person. What it is is the daily act of submitting to God, becoming more like Jesus and less like the world, that we live in. And we have this hope, the hope of salvation, because Jesus has forgiven what we have done and what we will do. That is a key. Friends, he's not only forgiven what you've already done, he's not only forgiven what maybe you're doing right now if you're struggling. <laughs> he's forgiven every sin that you, all, you will commit already. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's not only the unrighteousness that's already happened. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's gone before us, friends. He's already forgiven you. So the helmet of salvation, you see, it's the hope that when we accept Christ, that his salvation is here on this earth with us until the day we meet him in heaven. 
and that God is not up there with this red marker like it's a test, right? He's got a line, and when you get below the line, oh, they're no longer a believer, right? And he's up there just, oh, man, I'm going to give him so uh, That was close. I'm just not going to get him on that one. Why would God do something like send his one and only beloved son to die a horrible death on our Roman cross? To go ahead and be legalistic like that. The God I serve is more gracious and compassionate than that. You need to understand, friend, that when you ask forgiveness of your sins, when you submit your heart to God, he's forgiven the sins you will commit already. God is full of grace and compassion. And the helmet of salvation, remember, it's a bringer of life and not death. Finally, we have the only piece of armor in here that could be considered an offensive weapon uh, within these verses. It says in the second half of verse 17 that we should take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's really interesting because this is the only part of these six pieces of armor where it's spelled out exactly what the meaning is. The other ones we kind of have to investigate, connect them to other parts of the Bible. This is the one where it says, it is the word of God. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Anyone ever back in the day do a sword drill on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night at school? All right, Sunday school, right? We should have done a sword drill in here this morning, given out some sort of good Chick-fil-A gift card or something for someone who won a sword drill next time maybe. Remember, the sword, we talked about this last week, is something that hung from the belts of a Roman soldier. They had this belt, and it would cinch up their cloak and their clothes, and their sword hung from it, and it cinched up the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate. Within the armor of God, remember, the belt is identified as the belt of truth. So you've got to understand this morning, you don't have the word of the Lord without the truth. The truth is in it. In the first century, uh, one of these swords would have been anywhere from 6 to 18 inches long, depending. This Roman army that uh, Paul is envisioning here, it was legendarily strong. And this was their main weapon, was a sword that was 6 to 18 inches long. In Ephesians 17, I think it goes along really beautifully with another scripture uh, out of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.12 says this. I think we have it on the screen there. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any Double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, when you read that description, as far as spiritual weapons go, that sounds pretty powerful. Double-edged sword that pierces anything. That sounds pretty powerful. And traditionally, that's why I brought up the sword drill, the sword of the spirit is thought of as the Bible itself. You know, you'll... I remember when I was a kid, like, someone would say, hey, did you bring your sword to church? Meaning your Bible, right? However, there's this really interesting thing about the translation in here. Paul, when uh, he's writing, he normally uses the word, uh, the Greek word logos when talking about the word of God, L-O-G-O-S. When he's talking about the word of God, he usually uses logos. And that usually is referring to the gospel itself. However, the Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians right here is actually rhema. And rhema most often refers to a word that is spoken. I believe what Paul is kind of getting at here is this. It's not the words written on the page that are sharp as much as, as it is the words that are written on our hearts. You see, the way we have the sword of the spirit ready isn't necessarily by having a physical Bible with us at all times. 
Well, that's a really great place to start and a great thing to do. Some of the most godly people I know, for sure, there's a Bible on their dash at all times. The way to surely have it at the ready, though, is to have it hidden inside our heart. And have the words of God written on our heart. You know, the best swordsman, it would have been one that practiced the most or had the most experienced. And those that wield the sword of the Spirit most effectively, they're going to be those that have spent the most time with it. I'm really grateful that God is not, uh, I don't believe he's super legalistic about this because I'm a horrible memorizer. If you ask me to sit down and memorize something like word for word in a day, I will have the hardest time. I probably will not be able to do it. If I am able to do it, I, you know, to pass your test, I won't remember it the next day. It's not the way I'm, I'm wired. But repetition over time is what seals something inside of me. My wife is the opposite, man. She, I don't know if she has a photographic memory, but it's got to be close. I mean, she can, like, memorize stuff so quickly. It's incredible. I had this youth pastor one time when it came to the Word of God, to the Bible. Um, he was just familiar with it. It's like an extension of him. And I don't know if he was a good memorizer or not. Um, you know, back when I was a teenager, I had this thing called Teen Bible Quiz where you could go and memorize books of the Bible. My wife was really good at that. Heaven knows I tried to do it because the cute girls were in Teen Bible Quiz. <laughs> but, man, I was terrible, and I was a distraction because I was terrible at it, and I couldn't memorize, couldn't answer the questions. But this youth pastor I had, he was just familiar with the Word of God. It was like it was just part of him. And I just made up my mind when I was a teenager, man, uh, I want to have read the word enough that it's just in there, that I'm familiar with it. And this is how it would seem if someone was an incredible swordsman, right? If they just practiced with it so much, had it in their hands so much that any time, any battle, any situation, they were effective and ready. And this is how it seems uh, if the word of God is written on our hearts, any time, any situation, any battle, any temptation, it's ready. You know, I referenced last week uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. If you've never read it before, you should go read it, uh, Matthew chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We don't have time. But when Satan tempted Jesus with offers of worldly power and wealth and all kinds of things, we, it's really important to remember, go read this. Uh, we have access to the same weapon that Jesus responded with. Jesus was on this earth. If you believe what the Bible says, Jesus was on this earth walking with his own two feet, and Satan came to tempt him. And at every turn, Jesus, he quoted scripture right back at the enemy. You can find this in Matthew chapter 4. Remember, uh, Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember that when tempted with food, Jesus responded with this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3 that he would have had memorized. Remember that when tempted with great power, Jesus responded. Deuteronomy 6.13, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Bottom line is that when we keep the word of God at the ready in our hearts, we can not only hold our ground, but we can make advances for the kingdom of God. When you hide the word of God in your heart, just know that God's going to give you chances to speak. And a, lot, a lot of times you don't even have to look for them. And remember, the sword of the Spirit brings life, not death. 
Now, after this beautiful set of verses about how it looks to be a Christian, how to take up the spiritual armor, Paul's about ready to finish his letter. There's one more thing that he wants us to know, though, and that's this, that prayer makes all the difference. He gives us a couple of noteworthy things about prayer here, but let's read these verses. Uh, this is verses 18 to 20 of chapter 6. It says this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. A couple things we just got to take out of this before we get ready to be done here in a little bit. First, we have to realize that our heart should be in a state where it's constantly prayerful. I don't think Paul is literally saying, I know he's not literally saying that we should be uh, praying out loud at all times. In the spirit or otherwise, that would be hard to like do a job or, or do your normal life. However, when we've given our lives to Christ, the focus of our heart can completely change. In the focus of our heart, it becomes about what God wants and not what we want. And Paul, he even gives us in here this little roadmap. He says, we should be praying on all occasions. And what this means to me, in other words, we can be committing each part of our day to God. Asking God to be with us before it starts and not after it becomes a disaster. Those of you who are laughing have experienced that just like I have. <laughs> you know, praying before a tough meeting or a tough day, it's going to help us go in with the full armor of God uh, strapped up instead of scrambling to find a way to survive when things get crazy. Because if there's one thing we know about this world, it's what Jesus said, that we will have trouble. It says in here, the little roadmap says, we can bring all kinds of prayers and requests. Man, simply that means to me that there's nothing too big or small. God cares about the stuff that's going on in your life. God hears every single prayer that is sincerely offered. And he might not give us uh, the exact answer that we hoped for, that's a topic for another time. But you can be assured that when you pray with sincerity, that God hears you. And you can pray on all occasions. We should be praying also for all the Lord's people. When I read that, what it means to me is praying for the needs of others before we pray for our own needs. When you pray for the needs of others before your own, it has this funny way of aligning our heart with God's heart looking outside of our little bubble. And there's often, if someone in your life is, is going through a really hard thing, there's not a lot physically you can do, but prayer is effective. It works, it's powerful. And now Paul, he does something that I think is pretty incredible in two ways. Now remember, Paul, we talked about where he came from at the beginning of this, but he, uh, he also went by Saul and he was a killer and of Christians and he tried to put them in jail and he was a terrible guy. But he has this encounter with Jesus and then he authors a huge chunk of the New Testament that we're reading here. Paul is this guy who he has planted churches and he's raised up leaders all over the place and he's now in chains because of his faith. He is in prison because of his faith. And he's writing this letter and Paul asks the recipients of this letter, in many cases, probably new believers. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles here. 
who have never known they could, they could know Christ. And he writes to these new believers and he asks them to pray for him. I'm reminded of this scripture that I love and I quote it all the time. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The King James says, effecteth much. Hey, you notice the lack of qualifiers in there? Notice it's not the prayer of a righteous person who has been attending church for 10 years is righteous and effective, powerful and effective. Notice it's not the prayer of a person who has gone at least 12 hours without sinning is powerful and effective. Nothing about how long you've been a Christian. Nothing about uh, the, the prayer of a person who has uh, given at least 10% of their income to the church within the past five years is righteous and effective. Those things are all good. All it says is the prayers of someone who uh, is righteous are powerful. The other amazing thing I think is what Paul asks for. Remember, uh, he's in prison unjustly for talking about Jesus. He didn't commit a crime, but the people were getting stirred up and beginning to accept Jesus. So they threw him in prison. They didn't know what else to do with him. And you would think logically, like if you're in prison, what what would you be asking for prayer for? To get out of prison. Hey, pray for me that these uh, government officials will let me go. I'm sure that's a great thing to pray for, but what does Paul ask them to pray about? Simply that he would be able to communicate the gospel clearly. That he would be an ambassador to those who are keeping him under guard. We've talked some in Ephesians, I think, about taking joy in all circumstances and in persevering. And I think Paul gives us a great example right here, even in how he asks the people to pray. He's not asking to get out of jail. He's asking that he'll be able to lead the jailers to Jesus. And we should remember this, that if the greatest missionary the world has ever known needed prayer, then it's pretty likely that you and I need people to pray for us as well. Paul needed it, and we probably need it as well. We're almost done. I want you to notice just a couple of things as this letter closes up. Verse 21, Paul specifically talks about someone that he is sending out. And he sends out this man, Tychicus, for a purpose. And what's the purpose? Let's read these verses really quickly. I'm actually, uh, yeah, verse 21, 22. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending, sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Sometimes it's, it's easy to feel like we're not accomplishing anything, not making uh, big strides for the Lord. But he sends Tychicus out for a purpose, and he sends him out to encourage the believers. I believe that Paul is letting us know here that it's a high calling to be an encourager. And it's a high calling to encourage someone that's struggling. You don't even know uh, the effect that your encouraging words have. In a first-hand account and an encouraging word, it would have spoken volumes to these new Christians who are trying to learn a new way to live in the midst of the Roman society. So this morning, let us not underestimate the importance of encouraging. And finally, Paul, he's got one final thing to say. Uh, you can bow your heads, close your eyes. We're, we're almost done uh, today. We're going to get ready to pray. But Paul, he says this, this one final thing. He says this, and I love the way the New Living Translation puts it, so I'm going to read it to you in the NLT. Just uh, let it 
let it wash over you today. Verses 23 and 24. Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters. And may God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And this resonates with me because uh, every time we have church, I, if you walk out of here knowing one thing, I want you to know about the eternal love and the eternal life that's offered in Jesus. In John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you need to know that it's not just a story. Um, it's not just some words written down in a book, but that Jesus came to this earth that we are on. He lived a life with no sin. And he died and he rose again for you and I. So this morning, as we finish up Ephesians, friends, may God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get ready to pray this morning. If you're here today and um, you don't know God, if you and you want to, you, you would walk out of this place and say, you're not a Christian, but you want to be today. Come find me. I would love to pray with you, um, lead you to Jesus this morning. Um, come find one of our staff members. If you're wondering what in the world we're talking about, if all of this is brand new to you, come find one of us. We'd love to spend some time with you and talk you through it and pray over you before we go today. Lord Jesus, thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. Thanks for Engage Boise that you've made us for a time such as this. And I pray that we would uh, be a place that, that puts on the full armor of God. Lord, it would protect us from the schemes of the enemy. But I pray that people in here would be encouraged by what you say about them. Encouraged by the fact that you are faithful and just to forgive. And faithful that, uh, are encouraged by the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray... Uh, every person in this room, uh, that they would feel what my favorite psalm talks about, that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. You throw our sins away as far as the east is from the west. Lord, for those in, sitting in their chairs and, and, and their heart is beating fast because you're speaking, would you love to know that it's you? Help them to accept your love and your grace this morning. Lord, we place our hope and our trust in you. Thank you for your word that's sharp and alive. Uh, sharp as a two-edged sword. I pray that it would guide us and direct us, that your grace and your mercy would go with us today. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Friends, thanks for coming to church today. What a beautiful day to be alive. Hey, enjoy the